0: Well, church, if you look back in your life, uh, you can probably find certain moments that have changed the trajectory of your life. Maybe there was a job offer, maybe there was a, a move, the meeting of a new person. There are certain moments in life that you can only, only when you look back can you see the impact on your life. And this happens with even breaking news and world events that don't happen in our city. If you are old enough, then you remember exactly where you were on September 11th, and I could just say 9-11, I don't have to say 2001 because it's so widespread of the impact it had on our lives. You probably know where you were. You know how it's impacted you. But with some of these world events, it's difficult because even though it's tragic and our minds and our hearts are changed by it, on September 12th, the next day, most likely you got up like every other morning and you went to work. There were still your kids to take care of, you had laundry to do, bills to pay, you had to mow your grass, and though internally in our minds and in our hearts, everything seemed to change, we still had to endure the same circumstances we had the day before. In that moment, it seemed like right the world stopped, but in reality, the world just kept going and you had to play catch up even harder. This happened spiritually too. Because the moment Jesus calls you to salvation, your heart and your soul and your purpose in life changed. You went from death to life. Everything internally in you has changed, and yet you still must get out of bed the next day and work. You're still married. You're single. You have to mow your grass. Your job is the same. Your life changed in a moment, and yet the circumstances remained. So how do you live for Christ in the circumstances of life. Because when you come to Christ, your life and circumstances are not going to just get easy and go away. Your marriage won't instantly be healed. Your sickness will still be present. And yet your whole soul has changed because it belongs to Jesus. So what do you do in the midst of everything else if you love Jesus? But there's one big difference between Christians and non-Christians. Especially in regard to circumstances. The Christian is not defined by the circumstances of life. They still endure them, but for the Christian, his greatest identity is Jesus, not the ever-changing circumstances of our world, even the good ones. And Paul's going to make this very clear in 1 Corinthians 7. Would you please find your Bible? If you have one of those Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 955. Once you find 1 Corinthians 7, would you please stand in reverence... For the word of the Lord, we'll be reading verses 17 to 40 today. This is the word of the Lord. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods." And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, sanctify us by your Word this morning, for your Word is truth. Spirit, help us. Amen. Please be seated. As we work our way through 1 Corinthians, we've kind of split it up into sections of of themes in chapter five and through seven, is one called purity, where to where Paul has been correcting some sinful behaviors in the church and pushing them towards Christ likeness. We've looked at lawsuits and habits of sin and church discipline and singleness and marriage, and especially the last month has been a lot about marriage and singleness and a lot of hypotheticals and divorce and remarriage. And our passage hits on that today, and yet a lot of that is, is repetition. So if you have some questions about singleness, or marriage, or some of these points. We're probably not going to get to them here, but listen to the last few weeks if you can. But this is a bigger section of Scripture with a big truth. And Paul hits us with this truth right away in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says that each Christian has been called by God, and God has assigned each Christian to live out their calling in different circumstances. So what matters most to you is that your calling in Christ comes first and then your circumstances follow. So don't be formed okay, by your circumstances, be formed by Christ. And Paul's going to give examples of marriage, singleness, slavery, circumcision. He says, no matter your circumstance, that does not rule you. The fact that Christ has called you should rule you. So here's the main point of this passage in this sermon. Your calling from Christ is more important than your circumstances. And this call from Christ frees you to live for Christ in your circumstances. So those three points there are those three blanks of calling, circumstances, and living. So we're going to begin by what Paul means by the word call in verses 17 to 24. This is the most important part as Paul works through his argument The call from Christ, eight times in verses 17 to 24, Paul uses the word call. So eight times he uses the same word for a reason. And by this word call, Paul explicitly or implicitly reveals that the calling comes from God, that God is the only one behind this call. This is an act of God as if we are just doing our own thing and then boom, here comes God calling us. So look at verse 17 and 24 for an example here of this word call. Verse 17 says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Skip down to verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In both of these verses, this kind of bookend of that first paragraph in our text, we learn that God has called individuals and is aware of whatever life situations they are in. And God expects these individuals to live out their calling from God in their present circumstances. So to put it simply, when God saves you, he's not just going to change all of your life circumstances. He's actually going to free you to live a life for Christ in those circumstances you find yourself in. And this is what makes Christianity so different, because Christianity doesn't try to change your circumstances necessarily, though at times maybe you should, right? We talked about divorce last week. For example, if your home is a dangerous place, we would say you should leave that place, right? If you become a Christian and your job is unethical and you cannot do your job and follow Christ, we would say you should leave your job. But usually when someone comes to the Lord, their circumstances will not be changed the next day. Rather, their perspective of their circumstances should change. Instead of thinking of circumstances first, think of your calling by God first. Because Christian, I think you need to be encouraged at times that you are not defined by your circumstances. Right? You are not defined by your suffering. You are not the bad hand that you have been dealt in your life. You as a Christian are able to separate your identity from your current conditions and circumstances because God has called you, right? God has zeroed in from heaven and says, I want to choose you and love you and live life with you. So those circumstances matter, but they don't matter as much as what God has spoken to you and God has called you. So what does it mean in verse 17 when it says that God has called him? What means God has specifically saved you by his grace and he has done all of the work. God has decided to save you. He's put his eyes upon you and he has called you and he has saved you. God, by his grace, has called you to salvation. He's regenerated your dead heart. You were dead, opposed to God. Your natural inclination as a human was to be sinful, opposed to God. And yet here comes God, by his grace, calling you to salvation. If you are a Christian, this is your biography. Whom God calls to be his, God receives as his. Think about this verse in Romans 8. Because we often think of the word call as in like, I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to hopefully get in touch with somebody. When the Bible uses the word call here, That means they are going to answer. God is always effective in what he calls people to do. Look at verse 30. Oh, sorry, Romans 8, verse 30. We'll cross-reference for you. Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, Paul then goes through a bunch of circumstances of your life, like famine, or the sword, or violence, all these things. He says, none of that can take over your life if you are in Christ, as in your circumstances should not rule you, but the call of Christ should. Those whom God has called, he has justified. He's declared you right. Those whom he has called and justified, he has glorified. In other other words, God reached out from heaven to call a people to himself, and God will accomplish it. What God sets his heart out to do, God always succeeds. So when God calls someone, they will answer that doesn't mean every time the gospel is shared that someone comes to Christ. Only God knows the time and the place where he will regenerate the hearts. But when God calls someone, they will be saved. Right? God doesn't just call and, and hope you pick up like he's you know, got the landline phone with that little twisty cord kind of twiddling his thumbs waiting for you to answer. If God wants to accomplish it, he will accomplish it. It's called the effectual or the effective call. So when Paul uses the word call eight times in these verses, he says, God has called you and saved you, period. He started the process, he fulfilled the process, he did it all. You are changed, you are regenerated, you are saved all by God. You are a chosen child of God. And then he says, so this is who you are, eternity. And he has called you to live that out in a specific circumstance or condition. As in, God knows that when he saves you and he calls you to be his child, that you will still have this earthly life full of circumstances and feelings and trials and joys. And now he says, you must view all of those things in light of your call. So you are to work at your job. You are to parent your kids. You are to mow your grass in light of your calling by God to salvation. The circumstance or the condition you are in is most likely not going to change but now you've been called by God, and that actually changes everything. And in verse 17 to 24, Paul makes it clear that God calls you only by his grace. Only by his grace. Not because of any religious pedigree or status you have, or even because of your financial or cultural reputation. He gives two examples. One is circumcision, and one is slavery. First of all, with with circumcision, Paul says that when you come to Christ, You don't need to become circumcised or need to uncircumcise yourself. And he's writing to people who were either Jewish or around Jewish believers. Because in the Old Testament, Israel, one of the ways that they would receive and inherit the covenantal blessings promised to Abraham, every male had to be circumcised. So if you want the blessings of Israel, you must be circumcised. But Paul says here that that's not the case anymore. That if God calls you, it doesn't matter if you are circumcised or not. You don't need to go get circumcised to blend in with the Jews, and nor, if you're a Jew, do you have to be uncircumcised to blend in with the Gentiles. God has called you out of his grace, not because you can trace your ancestry religious lineage to to Israel and Abraham. Your salvation belongs to God. He will call some people who have a great religious history and pedigree of my granddad, my great granddad, they've been Christians for this long. God says that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of your eternity. The way that you come to salvation is not circumcision. It's not religious habits. It's not religious family history. It's solely the grace of God. So your circumcision status, your religious pedigree, doesn't define you. But also, if you are uncircumcised at times in the early church, you were looked at as less than. Oh, you don't have a religious background. You're not welcome here. This is for the religious elites. God's saying, no way. Even if you're the first Christian in your family or the only Christian in your city, guess what? You are saved by God's grace. But he also uses an illustration of of slavery, of that bond-servant language you see. I'm not going to speak so much into the issue of slavery here. We did quite a bit of that. If you go in the sermon archives, look back at Colossians. But historians believe that maybe one-third of the, of the citizens living in Corinth were in slavery. And one-third of them are freed slaves. You have more than the majority of people in this city who at one point were in slavery. Who were possessed by somebody else. They were property of someone else. And Paul says that if you are a slave and you come to know Christ, guess what? Your slavery doesn't define you. Christ does. Because Christ has spiritually freed you from slavery. Now, it's still going to be difficult. Thus, Paul says, hey, if you can get freed, go get freed. But he says, you can stay enslaved in the suffering of slavery and be a faithful Christian. But then he says, to those of you who are free and not a slave, your freed status doesn't define you either. Actually, spiritually, you are a slave to Christ. He turns the tables and shows to both people, whether you're free or a slave, what matters most is you belong to Jesus. So your social and cultural status doesn't define you. The calling of God does. And then he goes into marriage and he goes into singleness. He goes through all these circumstances. He says whatever condition or circumstance you are in doesn't define you. The most important thing is that you have been called by God. Not because of anything about you, but because of the grace of Jesus. Now this can be hard for us to swallow at times for a couple reasons. One, we might have some questions about God's calling and how he chooses, and things like that. But I think the biggest obstacle we have to this kind of truth is that we as humans struggle to receive unmerited grace. The biggest obstacle is that we struggle to receive something Freely, right? We live in a mindset that we have to earn everything. That this is my paycheck because I worked hard. Or this opportunity came my way because I deserved it. I've been working my tail off, right? Everything becomes a meritocracy, right? All about earning and deserving, and that is not how God works one bit. I mean, I remember even the child like in elementary school, I show, I show up to a baseball trial and in an hour of me doing baseball things at like eight in the morning, I'm still dead asleep. I'm evaluated and told, am I good enough or bad enough? Can I make the team or not? One hour dictates acceptance or not. Or maybe you've been in a job interview recently. You have an hour long job interview. Your job is to sell yourself. Here's what I've done. Here's what I'm accomplishing. Here's what I'd bring to the team. It's all about me. You have to earn the job. Here's what I've accomplished. But with God, what does he do? Or what does he not do? He doesn't look just for those who are circumcised with a deep ancestry of faith. He doesn't look just for the socially elite who can give more money to the church. God never puts you in a spiritual tryout to test out your abilities to see if you're worth it to belong. God doesn't look at your resume because your true resume wouldn't be worth looking at anyway because God chooses sinners, period. God doesn't look to say, is there going to be any good in that person? What is he going to bring me? What is she going to do for me? No, no. There is nothing good in us naturally. We are depraved. We are sinful. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short. We are short of the line where we should be. And yet there is God calling short, depressed, lonely, upset, burdened, sinful people like us who are a mess and says, I want to absorb you in salvation. All of this is grace. The fact that God would pick up the phone of salvation and ring our numbers should humble and amaze us. And this is what the most important thing about us is all about God saved us from our sins has given us Jesus and that is the point everything else takes a back seat to that so maybe you're in here and you you have not been called by God do you want to be called by God you are called to humble yourself right Paul is writing to this church in Corinth and he says you have to stop thinking about your religious resumes of circumcision or the social elites of those of you who are freed oh humble yourself Do you see your sin? Do you see that in yourself you you have a spirit of inadequacy? You can't save yourself. As much as you try, you cannot save yourself and bring yourself to God. Confess the inadequacy that you can't bring enough merit. As we've been singing before Christ, look to Jesus who came with everything, all of the resume, all of the righteousness, all of the merit, and he's given it to you for free and actually taking your sin on his back. This is the greatest transaction in the history of the world. He resurrects a new life and he says, you can find freedom in me. Salvation. You can be called by the all-holy creator, perfect God. Chapters ago we, we read this, but Paul mentions that God loves to call the lowly and the despised and the fools of the world. Everyone in this world is foolish. It's just, do you admit it? God calls sinners by His grace and His grace alone. That's the calling of God. Next, let's look at the circumstances of life. Because Paul makes it clear that when God calls you to salvation that you are still going to be living in your present conditions and your circumstances and dealing with the stuff of life, right? You live where you are, you're married, you're single, you're engaged, you still live in a real tangible place with all the circumstances of yesterday, but your calling by God to salvation should reorient how you live in these circumstances. Look again at verses 25 to 31. Paul writes now concerning the betrothed I have no command from the Lord but I give my judgment as one by who the Lord's mercy is trustworthy I think that in view of the present distress it's good for a person to remain as he is are you bound to a wife don't seek to be free are you free from a wife don't seek a wife but if you do marry you've not sinned and if a betrothed woman marries she has not sinned Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that This is what I mean brothers The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Again, we're not going to get all the details of marriage and singleness again. We've walked through a lot of these scenarios But overall, Paul is saying that once you are saved by Jesus, your primary focus turns away from your circumstances and goes to Jesus. That even your marriage or your engagement, your singleness, are not the most important thing about you because your primary role is to live for God and not those things. And in verse 31, Paul says that the present things of this world are going to pass away. So marriage is not going to be eternal. Your worldly anxieties, the things that keep you up at night thinking or the things that you wake up and you think illogically about at three in the morning, those aren't going to be there in heaven. Your earthly riches and possessions and accumulations are not going to be with you in heaven. Once God calls you to him, we have to see everything else around us as temporary and passing away. So why would we ever let the ever-changing and ultimately fading circumstances of life rule us. That's why Paul uses a lot of exaggerated language, hyperbole. Now this is a proof that you should not read every passage of the Bible literally. Husbands, verse 29, do not take this literally. Husbands, live your life like you aren't married. Okay, He's using exaggerated language here. Paul says, your spouse, husband, is not your life. Jesus is. So put them in the right order and then everything will be okay. Or he says, you know, those who buy, act like you don't own anything, as in don't let your resources and your wealth and your possessions be in the driver's seat. Let Jesus be driving that car of life and all will be good. He says in verse 26 that we are in the end times. This doesn't mean that Jesus is coming back tomorrow and the Antichrist and all this stuff we see in the movies and books is going to happen right now. He says we're in the midst of a present distress. Present distress means that we are in the time from when Jesus left to when Jesus is coming back. And all of this present stuff is going to pass away. This is the end times and we are to live like that. That does not mean you hoard up you know, canned goods in your basement No, the perspective is that we're going to go through circumstances of life and joy, suffering and relief, time of pains and time of relief. This is expected, but whatever you see that's impacting you and affecting you, don't get caught up thinking that that's the point of your life. Because Jesus is. Everything that we face, it can be difficult and emotional and hard, and yet it's not going to carry with you into eternity. This is all going to pass away. So why give it the allegiance or the anxiety? It doesn't deserve that. So your cancer doesn't define you if you're a Christian. Your unfulfilled longings for a spouse or that dream career doesn't define you if you are a Christian. Paul says in verse 35 that no matter what circumstance you are in, we are called to strive for an undivided devotion to the Lord. By the way, that's a good phrase to pray for yourself this week. When we let our sickness or our health or our bank account or our kids' sports dreams become the driver of our life, then God doesn't have the undivided devotion. He has divided devotion. He is taking turns driving the car with somebody else. And I'm speaking as a person who can so easily allow a circumstance to completely overwhelm me, right? I have my day planned out, and there's these things called interruptions that happen. And sometimes that just seems to wreck my day, right? Sometimes relational tension between people can ruin days and weeks and seasons of your life. There are things that will keep you up at night with anxiety, life interruptions, and Paul has not given us a magical medicine, a pill we can take, and all of this goes away. That's too easy. But Paul says we are not as forward-thinking as we should be. We become so bogged down with our present troubles and anxieties, and even our present joys and present blessings, that we don't look to the future. Do we ever stop and think, what is going to carry me into eternity? It's not this circumstance. And even if all of your prayers become answered and you get healed from this and you get that job and your kids live a safe, great life, that still will not carry you into eternity. Your money, your resume, your work, that sin that you are flirting with, it will not carry you to eternity. Only Jesus will. So let Jesus be the one who who is proclaiming over your life what is ultimate and what is not Now, circumstances matter. They're real. Jesus endured circumstances. He endured pain and loss. His family left him at times. He was persecuted and he was beaten. And yet he endured them all with joy because they do not ultimately make us us. What makes us us is Christ, not circumstances. So if we have this in our mind, at least cognitively right now, that we've been called by God, that's the most important thing. Our circumstances should not drive us in our life. Then what do we actually do when we endure circumstances? How do we actually live for Christ in the circumstances of life? This is the last point, living for Christ in the circumstances of life. could be cancer, a failing marriage, a a prodigal Child, a mundane job you dread every week. Maybe it's a fun new opportunity. Any circumstance, there are two things that the New Testament calls you to do in any circumstance. You are to obey Jesus and be content. Obedience and contentment. Any circumstance you find yourself in, these are the two things you are called to do from the New Testament. Let's first look at obedience. Look at verse 19 of our text. Paul says that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what matters? Keeping the commandments of God. Your status as an ethnic Jew, your religious pedigree, your skin color, your economic status, your education, whatever it is, that doesn't deserve your ultimate allegiance. It doesn't deserve your obedience. No, God who has called you and saved you by his grace calls you to obedience and submission. God calls you to salvation, and God calls you to obedience. He is both Savior and Lord, both the forgiver and the king, and a king is to be obeyed and bowed down to. So any circumstance you find yourself in, you are called to, com- to keep the commandments of God in them. So when you are in something, your job, painful period, you're, you're unsure of what to do next, Have you ever thought, how can I obey God in this? Before you're thinking of, I got to make a plan and respond to this, I got to think about this, I got to think about that, how am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to get my kids here and there at the same time? Have you ever thought, how can I obey God in this circumstance? If God is driving the car of your life, you should look to Him first. So, what if your circumstance is sickness? How do you obey God? in the midst of cancer or an illness or your spouse who has dementia? How can you obey God? At times, it's going to look like fighting against the sin of doubt and bitterness against God. At times, it's going to be trusting in God and actually sitting back and resting and realizing you can't control everything. At times, it looks like being humble and actually letting other people take care of you. It looks like taking this pain and confusion and this doubt and turning it into a life of prayer or what about on the other side of things if you get a promotion your life is looking like it's on the up and up how do you live for Christ in good seasons of life first of all it's having an overwhelming disposition of thankfulness to God that you did not earn that you did not get that for yourself that is from God right so it's killing the temptation of self-sufficiency but it also looks about like how can I use this new opportunity, you know, my new raise, how can I use that for the Lord? How can I use my resources to love people? Right? It's taking that job promotion of more authority and saying, I'm going to make this workplace be so filled of the fruit of the spirit of kindness, and I'm going to work hard for the Lord. Are you a parent? How can you display the gospel of Jesus and a life of obedience so much at home that your kids will never doubt your faithfulness to Christ. Are you retired? Is this a time to ramp up your love for Jesus by serving, discipling younger people, getting in the word like you've never been able to before? Are you in the mundaneness of life where a week goes by and you're like, I don't really know what's going on? How can you obey God During the mundaneness of your life, are you in the Word? Are you in prayer? Are you serving? Can you live a mundane job for the glory of God? Essentially, it's asking, What does the Bible require of me in this condition? And every circumstance you are in, living out the Bible there. And if you ever find yourself in a scenario where you can't obey God in that situation, then get out of that situation. Some people have to quit their jobs or their habits when they become a Christian because you can't follow Christ there. But mostly think about it this way. Christ has called you to salvation and he knows where you are. He knows who your neighbors are, who your spouses, who your kids are, what job you have, what time you have, what money you have. So how can you obey the Lord in each one of those situations? How can I be the most obedient Christian in this sphere of my life? Uh, a few weeks ago, we had the, the funeral here for our dear sister, Kathy Dressel. And Kathy is a great example of this point. Right? Kathy was there next to her husband, Bruce, as he was dying of cancer, and he eventually died. She becomes a widow, and she grieves, and at times it's lonely for her. And yet, Kathy had the mindset that she was not going to let the loss of her husband drive her life for whatever year she had left. Rather, Kathy had the mentality of, how can I, as a new widow, obey God? She poured her newfound time and energy into other women here of all ages. Her friendships took off, and she used her unfortunate circumstance as an opportunity to obey God in a unique way. Our circumstances are not just mere happenings or coincidences. They are unique opportunities for you to live for Christ in obedience. Kathy's life was not instantly over the moment Bruce died. Why? Because Bruce was not her life. Jesus was her life. And no one can take Jesus from her. So she had a different perspective. She had one of obedience. So wherever you find yourself, even a terrible job, think, how can you obey God here? But the last thing to mention here is not only are you to be obedient, but you are to be content in your circumstances. And at times this might even be harder. You can go to work and you can have bitterness in your soul and think you're obeying, but you're not if you don't have contentment. Three times in verses 17 to 24, Paul commands the Christians to remain in their circumstances. They shouldn't change their circumstance or condition, but remain in it. And the rest of the passage is Paul giving instructions about how to be content in Jesus more than your marriage or your singleness or your engagement. Right? The point of Christianity is not to change the circumstances of your life, but to give you contentment in them. Look at verse 24. Paul says, So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God doesn't mean you should never quit your job or move. Obviously, we talked about this last week. If you're in a dangerous relationship, you get out of there. But generally, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever condition you are in, God is there with you. Changing circumstances is not going to save you and bring you joy. Only God can do that. So sometimes you need to remain where you are and be with God there. And you can be content in all circumstances with God. Right? Contentment is a similar word to trust. It's trusting that you have God even in that circumstance, and that's what makes it okay. Even in your highest happy moments, you are not content because you have stuff or opportunities or money, but because you have God. Your life's happiness does not make it or break it on circumstances, but makes it or breaks it on the faithfulness of God. And he's always faithful. But when we let circumstances or emotions rule, then contentment will constantly be fleeting, right? Like that pot of the gold at the end of the rainbow you try to get to. Once you think you find it, the pot moves. It's never attainable because circumstances are never attainable. They're not stable. You can't predict them. But Jesus, he never changes. So if you have Jesus, no matter what changing circumstance, you can be content because you know the nature of who Jesus is. You know his character. You can always fall back on who he was yesterday, who he is today, and who he is tomorrow. I mean, how do you react when something in your life is taken from you? Right, it's good to grieve. It's biblical to grieve. But to think that your life is over because you lose someone or something that's a dangerous place to be. What do you do when your riches are gone? Is your joy gone? When your relationship ends, is your joy gone? Can you be content even if you lose something so dear to you? There's a short story by an author named Wendell Berry. The story's called Dismemberment. It's just a little short story. But it's about a farmer named Andy Catlett. And at age 40, Andy's been farming his whole life. He loses his right hand in a farming accident if you're a farmer and you lose your right hand, you are in a lot of trouble. And instead of figuring out how to deal with this and figure out what solutions are, Andy got angry and he got bitter and he closed himself off from everyone, his own family, his neighbors. He acted like his life was ruined because he lost his right hand. The most important tool for his work was gone. So his life was gone, full of discontentment and anger. But there's this beautiful part in this story where he sees all of his neighbors starting to walk through his gate onto his farm to come and help him. He never asked them for help, but they knew he needed help. At that moment, Andy broke down and he realized that through his own pain, his own pride, his own self-sufficiency, he had lost the joy and the friendships that made his life wonderful. He walked away from it because he lost his right hand. That's a big sacrifice. That's a huge pain. But he gave up all the joy because he thought his joy was rooted in his work. So he came to the point of humility. And it says that he had become small enough to enter into joy again. And he had to become small. He had to lose his big head and his pride for him to find joy again. His right hand is not what made him him. But the illusion of his right hand tested him to figure out who he was. And he came to the moment and realized that farming and the strength of his arm is not going to make his life satisfied. He had to become small enough to realize that. Sometimes we have to hit rock bottom to see what life is about or what life is not about. So, circumstances for Christians should never rob us of our identity. If they do, then we've had the wrong perspective and we need to become small again and realize that we have nothing apart from Jesus. But in Jesus, only in Jesus, can we actually find everything. Paul says in Philippians 4 that I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Friends, remain where you are. Obey Christ wholeheartedly with a devotion where you are and trust he is there with you so you can not only survive it, but find joy and contentment. And each day that you go to work or you go to your chemo treatment or you pray for that wayward child or you mow your grass, do it knowing that it cannot make you you. Only Jesus can do that and he's already done it. He has called you and made you his own and nothing can separate you from that. Let's pray. Father, we ask that this week there will be an undivided devotion in our hearts towards you. We thank you that you would call us, you'd call sinners like us and now we can come to you and find joy and we can come to you and find prayer no matter what we are facing but Lord, we want to be obedient, we want to be content You deserve all of our devotion and our worship. Jesus, thank you for the cross and the empty tomb, that we have life in you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.